in the book of Mark. Oh, there we are. And uh, we've come to the end of chapter 10, which means we have chapter 11 through 16 remaining. And so I've decided uh, through prayer and thought, rather than push through the end of the book and end up sometime in the summer, I thought that chapter 11 to 16 is such a contained unit. Chapter 11 begins with the triumphal entry with Palm Sunday and kind of initiates that final week of Jesus' life. And so we're going to push the pause button on the book of Mark and come back in the fall and wrap up chapters 11 through 16 and really dig into that final week of Jesus' life. I'm really looking forward to that. But what that means is we're going to change gears a little bit for the spring and for the summer. And so starting next week, we're going to be in the book of Jonah and walk through that entire book. It's this fabulous book in the Old Testament. I'm really looking forward to jumping in. So that's beginning next Sunday. But what that means is today we kind of have a, a standalone week where we're not in a particular series. I've asked Steve to prepare a message uh, on a passage of his choice. And so we're going to be in the book of Hebrews. And Steve, if you haven't met Steve, he's on our board. Uh, he's one of our shepherds. So maybe you've connected with him that way. Just a, a fabulous man of God that I'm really looking forward to hearing from, and I know that uh, you will be blessed by hearing from him as well. So let's welcome Steve as he comes to, to share with us. Thank you. I'm already bugged by the slant of this. Uh... <laughs> Good morning. It's, uh, it's, it's terrific to be here. I was going to say that uh, Matt is... Uh, on vacation, but I guess you are since you're sitting there rather than standing up here. I uh, Listening to Matt uh, even just give the announcements, it, it made me think of a time when I, was, when I went to kindergarten when I was a little boy, and I'll, I, I've always remembered it and I've never had another experience like that. I came home from kindergarten the first day and my cheeks actually were sore. The muscles in my cheeks were sore from smiling the whole time. And I told my mom that. I said, my, my cheeks are sore. And she thought, well, are you sunburned? But it turned out I just had these muscles that were uh, just fixed in a smile. And that hasn't happened to me since until I met our pastor, Matt. And I'm not one to flatter, but I wanted to say that when I'm here and I'm around, when I'm around Matt, uh, whether it's a meeting or in, in church or listening to him give announcements or when he's preaching, I am all smiles inside. God has been so gracious to us to bring Matt and, and Lee, both, of course. So you're, uh, you, I love your voice, and I, I love to be around you. Um, I'm not into flattery or gossip. I don't repeat gossip. Was the joke uh, so listen well the first time? I really do have to change this thing. Okay, here we go. When Matt... Uh, asked me, he said he was discontinuing Mark, and he told me I could pick a, a passage. I picked a passage that was one of my favorite in the, in the Bible, in uh, Hebrews. And I, long ago, it was the first Bible, I, first Bible book that I'd ever, ever really studied in a studious and in in an effective um, manner. And so I love it. It has a lot of truth in it. But since I picked Hebrews 10, and since that day, I've regretted picking this uh, section of Scripture. Never, uh, I learned, never pick a verse that starts with the word therefore. Because therefore is one of those words that means 
It's, it, it's a word of logic, it's a word of uh, math, it's a word of, uh, in, the le in the legal profession, and it means that a long argument has probably been made to come to a point where then one says, therefore, and you're asking for either a response or you're going to make another salient point about all of this. And in Hebrews 10, we're at the end of Hebrews, and so he spent nine, the writer of Hebrews spent nine chapters uh, making some fantastic theological points and, and material that would be very beneficial to us, but we have a half hour. And Larry, Larry Hunt in, in Sunday school, he told me when I left there this morning, he said, uh, remember, uh, no one gets saved after noon. He, sa he said that that's what his father always told his pastor. Uh, I think that's funny. The letter to the Hebrews was addressed... Uh, to Jewish Christians who were in a position, probably because of persecution, uh, they were in danger of abandoning their faith and lapsing back into Judaism, uh, which is really an encouragement to me because none of us have ever escaped thinking about our faith and having some doubt at one time or another. And so when we hear about people failing to live up to their faith or failing to, to, to grasp it, uh, with both hands all the time, that's an encouragement. At least it's an encouragement to me. A great portion of the world at that time knew that the Israelites were God's people. They called themselves those who were chosen. And that's true. Abraham, who was a moon worshiper in Mesopotamia, was called by God. And that was the beginning of the Jewish race. And the whole history of the Old Testament is a testament to that. And he, God, did amazing, miraculous things with the Jews. I think the one that strikes me the most is what happened in Egypt and the ten plagues. That, that story, that, that event had to have been spread around the known world uh, back when it happened. And in fact, uh, if any of you have ever been through a Seder meal, which is... A recreation of the Passover and a, and a memorialization of the Passover, it, there's a recitation of the ten plagues in there, hidden in there, and which is, was really quite a marvelous time. In fact, the last plague, you remember, was what the Passover was named, for, named after, and it pointed to Christ, as, as so much of the Jewish history does. God not only did miraculous things, amazing miraculous things um, in, in the midst of the Israelites, but he also gave them the law. I just met Ellen Law. They said she's got a great name, better than Fretwell. I love that. Uh, he gave them more than one covenant. Covenant was, was, was huge with the Jews. He declared them to be his people and emphasized over and over that he was the only one true God. Now, Hebrews was written by, we don't know. There is speculation that it might have been you know, Barnabas, someone like that. Most, of the, most of, the, of the historians say that Paul most definitely was probably not the writer because of the grammar that he uses and the kind of tone that he sets in the language. And Paul, because he's already written, we already know Paul well because he's written most of the New Testament. And he's getting his royalties there, probably, so they had to spread that around a little bit. I was 
in New York City last week, and Debbie and I went to, the, for the first time, Times Square in the evening. We wanted to see it at night where it had all the lighted, back, backlighted uh, billboards and announcements and scrolls. And it, it was really quite terrific. And in the midst of that was a man sitting on a, on a chair, folding chair, with a sign. And I really didn't, couldn't tell what it was, but he was a Christian, and he had something on the sign that said, you know, repent, or John 3.16, or whatever. And I, and I was thinking, uh, John 3.16, you know, that's probably the one verse that uh, the writer got the most royalties on, right? You see that in all the ball games. So the writer of Hebrews presented to these Jews who have been virtually marinated all their lives in legalism and the law because they were now feeling unanchored from anything. They had come to Christ and left, left the temple behind. Remember that we learned in, in Acts 8 that after persecution started in Jerusalem, Everyone, all the Christians had to leave Jerusalem except for the apostles. So these Christians, even though, since we don't know when it was written, but probably 75 years, um, 75 AD, maybe 40 years, just before the, uh, the dest- destruction of the temple, they were feeling unanchored from their old faith because the law was everything. The temple was everything. The temple is where they went to see God and to meet God and to have forgiveness because of the sacrifice of the, of the animals. Jerusalem was the capital city. It was, it was, uh, it was huge. We, we really can't understand that because we're not Jewish. The writer begins his letter with a provocative introduction which acknowledges God's relationship with the Jews but also declares that God is going to be pivoting in his approach uh, to mankind. We see it as a pivot, but in fact, from the beginning of time, God had planned to send the Messiah and that all of the Jewish ritual and the sacrifices were nothing but foreshadowings of who Christ was and what he would do for us. I want to turn, even though that's not part of our, but I think it it would be helpful, I'm going to turn to the introduction, this provocative introduction that the writer of Hebrews gives. He writes in verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago, to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. That just simply means in fragments. I don't know if you're like me, you think back and and look at the prophets and look at the long history of Judaism, and it is true, is it not, that God only once in a while intervened into the world and and spoke to people, spoke to his his prophets. And the relationships that he had with, with men and women were at least in our recorded uh, in recorded history, were, were rare compared to now, where now we each have a relationship with God personally through His Spirit living in us. But back then, it was, uh, it was in fragments. In these last days, verse 2, He has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And if you've studied John, you remember that's what John, John the first chapter says. Jesus was the creator. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his, of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand 
of God. Jesus, the writer emphasized, is not only a prophet, like those who came before him, he is the Son of God and the creator of the universe, one who now sits in a place of authority at the right hand of God. But most provocatively, for the Jews anyway, I believe, was the idea of purification of sins, Hebrews says, was available through him. Why is that provocative? Because the temple was the only place where forgiveness of sins was available. You approach God in the temple, the whole Mosaic Levitical sacrificial system was put in place by God in order for sins to be forgiven. God, it was his idea, the priests, the high priest, the Day of Atonement, even the furniture in the temple, if you've ever studied the temple or the tabernacle, even the furniture points to Jesus Christ. And that's a whole other subject, but you know, the, the, the labor, the water, the washing, the light, the, the uh, menorah, what we call the, uh, the candelabra, the showbread, everything, when Jesus came, all the metaphors he used to describe himself, you could also point to the temple because Jesus obviously knew that the temple was set up in order for mankind to understand that we were separated from God, which is what we're going to be looking at today. The temple rituals are simply, simply foreshadowings. Now, I love the idea that God, before he created the world, had already put in, plan, put in place a solution to the sin that led to the fall. We all know what the fall is. We use two words to describe something that was pretty horrible. And, and it was pretty horrible. Do you remember that when the fall occurred, Adam and Eve recognized that they were naked and they were ashamed? That's kind of a funny thing to me. And they, and they sewed fig leaves together. And God said, where are you? Probably in that voice. And we'll come back to that. But he had to kill, the. they were vegetarians. Someday you look back in Genesis 1 or 2, and it's interesting that all of the greens in the, in the world were given to man and to beast to, to eat. Our, our granddaughter's with us right now, and she's on a vegetarian kick because she saw a pig at a pig roast uh, two weeks ago, and now she won't eat bacon, or, and she points to things. Is that, is, what is that? Right? Is that a cow? Is that a pig? because she, she has this, this compassion. And I was showing, she, had a, she lost a tooth last night, and we have a whale tooth up on our, on our uh, above our fireplace on the mantle, because Debbie's uncle used to be an owner, and he ran an, a, a, a whaling plant in Norway. Well, I wasn't thinking about her new vegetarianism when I took this tooth down. I said, well, put this under your pillow and see what your mom thinks instead. And I see Kelsey's looking at me like, you know, don't go there about the whaling plant. Uh, so, so I caught myself and, and came here instead. But we, uh, I, have to, I have to be guarded because I, I want to tell her, well, in the Old Testament, honey, everybody was a vegetarian until the fall. But that gets a little too deep, I think, for a five-year-old. It's a little too deep for me. But anyway, I was going to say that we are intrigued as a culture with things 
like the, uh, the Da Vinci Code that Tom Hanks started, right? The whole culture embraces that. And I always want to say to people, if you read the Bible and you recognize what God has put into place, the mystery of his plan and the great visual aids and everything, the detail points to the cross. It is, it is really quite astounding, and, and it's a story that sometimes we find tedious, uh, and we need to get over that because it is, it's an interesting, it's an interesting um, story, it's an interesting history, and it says a lot about how great our God is. Amen. So he was a better, let me say, uh, So this purification of sin. So they really had a hard time with that because it had to be done through the Mosaic law that God himself. Remember Paul, when he came to Christ at the, at the, on the road to Damascus, I said last time I preached, I said, well, I won't tell you what I said because uh, Dylan is in here. Um, I got in trouble. In the temple were the priest, the, the high priest, the day of atonement, the animal sacrifices, the spilt blood, the whole system uh, as explained in the nine chapters before this one was set up by God. It was his idea. First in the tabernacle and later in the Jerusalem temple. And now the writer of Hebrews expansively argues that you can put that aside because he writes in chapter 3 and 4 that Jesus was better than Moses and Joshua. Now, Moses was the lawgiver, and even though Abraham was the first Jew, Moses was probably the, the one person that the Jews looked to. He took them out of Egypt. That was huge. But Jesus was better than Moses. He was a better sacrifice. He goes into that in chapter, in chapter 9. Jesus was a better high priest in chapter 7. So each one of these chapters, he's leading up to the verses we're in. And that's why I say, therefore, is scary, because you can't, you can't talk about all these things in depth. So I can only use one or two word uh, statements. A better high priest. He also brought to fruition that new covenant that God had promised in Jeremiah 31. The better covenant. So he says he was a better, a better covenant. I'll read it to you. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. He repeats this, he, he quotes this in his letter twice. I will put my laws upon their heart, and upon their mind I will write them, and their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. I will remember no more. Furthermore, as an aside, uh, in in the first nine chapters, he makes the argument that Jesus was a better Sabbath and that he had better promises. And let me add, I put a note in my, in my uh, margin that in the temple, a purification of sins was possible, but maybe not purification of sin, S-I-N singular with a capital S, distinction. Now, I, I suspect that if you were to go home today, I doubt if you do it, but if you want to read the first nine chapters of Hebrews, 
and come to some conclusion, you would probably come to this conclusion, and that is that the sacrifices of the temple only served to remind people of sin, of their sins. They had to be done over and over again. The high priest went on the Day of Atonement once a year, went into the Holy of Holies where God resided and could be met, and did that once a year. And, and the Hebrew says that doing it over and over and over again was, for the Jews, a reminder of their sins, not a remission, not a taking away, not, not an atonement. They had the Day of Atonement, but it was only for those sins they didn't know they had committed, and it was only good through that day. The next day started afresh, and they had to wait for the Day of Atonement a year later. And all of this, as I mentioned before, can be tedious to us if we don't remember that it's all pointing to Christ. And when we want to look at God through Christ, then that's where our faith is most exciting. When I read the Old Testament, the reason I use the word tedious is that I've, I've, I've taught different books of the Old Testament, and I come away with the realization that there's a common, uh, what's the word, uh, beat in it. The Jews were obnoxious and obstinate and, hard, and hard-hearted and hard-headed and disobedient. That always happened. You know, every other page. Then they are punished. Then there's repentance. And then God forgives them. That's the pattern throughout the Old Testament. And I remember when I, was a young, when I was a younger Christian, I used to read that and I'd say, how stupid can they be? Because that's not me. When you're younger, you think, that wouldn't happen to me. I, I haven't been disobedient. I used to think when I became a Christian at age 16, 50-some years ago, that Jesus was in a canoe with me and he was paddling with me, and I used, to, I used to love that metaphor. Okay, he's with me all the time. I didn't like the unequally yoked. I mean, I didn't like the yoke thing. Um, I didn't see myself as a steer, but I liked the, the canoe. And, and I went through life like that for a long time. And I, I believe that God is gracious with the young Christian and allows us to grow into our, into our relationship with Christ in that way. But as I get older, then I realize, like Paul did, that our sin is, is so horrible that it does require the spilt blood. First in the Old Testament, the animals. Why, why do you think that God said that the life, the, blood, the life was in the blood and our salvation is, is through being washed in the blood? It's gory. I, I've never seen a body, I've never seen a, a body that's been killed or damaged in my lifetime. Some of you might have been in the service and... and, I, and it's terrible, and you've probably seen that. The closest I came to it when my father had cancer and was in the hospital, and this just is occurring to me, so I, forgive me, uh, he was spitting up blood, and we, we camped out there for a couple, uh, five days, my brother and I, until he passed away. But he would spit up blood, and I would take the, one day I took the, uh, the spittoon kind of out from under his chin, and I thought I was going to help the nurses out, and I went into the bathroom, and I turned on one of those big sink uh, shower things that were over the sink, and I sprayed it, and it came out at like 100 gallons a minute, hit this, and sprayed, sprayed blood over me and the whole, the whole bathroom. 
And I didn't even want to go out and tell anybody because I thought I was being a helper. But I'll never forget what that looked like to have blood spattered on the white walls and on me and on the, and on the hardware of the sink. And then someone had to clean that up. And that, that's the, the view of, of what was going on in the temple. You know, the, the people were being splattered with the blood of the sacrifice. And their sins were being, for, being forgiven that way. And therefore, Jesus, that was a picture of Jesus. He had to die. He couldn't die in a sleep somewhere. And then we were told about it. He had to die a horrible death because our sin is horrible. It, it was, it's costly to him. And he had to shed his blood just like they did in the, in, the, in the Old Testament system. And all of that was, again, was set in place so that we would understand when Jesus came. Now it makes sense to us. And Hebrews explains it so well. That's why I love Hebrews. But what happened to the veil? You read about the veil in, that, in those verses, you know, the, the veil of his flesh. Remember in both Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it says that the veil was torn from top to bottom. Well, actually, they say the veil was torn in two. Luke gives the added, the added detail that it was torn from the top down, which, which I love because it implies a supernatural agency. That couldn't have happened without God. read, since we have confidence to enter the holy of holies by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his torn flesh, I'll add. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. We have a cross at the front of our church. Did you know that it's not mandated anywhere in scripture that we display a cross? I've been to church with people in an auditorium at a school, and I remember one of my friends said, they don't even have a cross. Then I kind of thought, well, right, but we're the people of God. The church, wherever we gather, we are before God. The cross is just a, it's just a visual aid. Last time I, I, I met with one of my vendors, and I think I mentioned this before, that they had a crucifix in their office. And so it got us into a conversation about Christianity, and, and I, I joked with them that you, you, you Catholics just can't get Jesus off the cross, can you? And, and they thought that was funny, and I said, well, I said, I recognize now that I'm an older man and have more wisdom, I hope, that it's okay. The crucifix is the same, is really the same. It just, it just points to his passion. They're, the Catholics don't deny that he came off the cross and was resurrected. So I had to get over that. But throughout, throughout history of the church, there have been many symbols of the Christian faith. And I have to tell you that I was, I was, I was a kind of jazzed. The ichthys, I used to have an ichthys on my car. That was the acronym for the word fish in the Greek. And they used the letters to say, Jesus Christ, um, Son of God, Savior. That's what the, the letters are. And I didn't know that when I put it on my car. I just thought it was a fish because we're fishers of men. But also the anchor, the shepherd, the Greek cross, which is the plus sign that we have in our Gumby Tower back there. Uh, I used to be bugged that we didn't have a cross out there, but it is a cross. And they used that in, in ancient history in the church, the, the, uh, the Greek cross. Also the Roman cross and the crucifix, among others. So it occurs to me that the torn veil, which I don't really give much thought to, the torn veil 
could serve as another symbol for us to hide in our hearts to complement the richness of the well-understood cross because the, the torn veil reminds us, like the cross, of Jesus' death, but it also reminds us of our unobstructed access to God. And I need that. I need to be reminded that I have unobstructed access to God. Otherwise, I'll be like Adam and Eve, who, you know, I'll put fig leaves together and, and, and be fearful of him when he says, instead, draw near with confidence. In verse 4, 416 in Hebrews, it's the same thing. Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to find grace and mercy in time of need. I believe that the writer of Hebrews encourages us to draw near to God with confidence, boldness in some of your texts because he knows we are, like the early Jewish Christians, double-minded and in the midst of spiritual battle. And that spiritual battle with Satan is very real. When people uh, learn that I'm a Christian and they, you, you really believe the Bible's true, I often say, well, you'll really think I'm weird. Not only do I believe that's true, but I believe in Satan. See, that's a weird, we do. We do, right? But to say that out loud, is, it, sounds, it sounds really primitive and prehistoric and Middle Ages almost to people. But Satan is, is very real. So our spiritual battle. I, I was thinking about the drawing near with confidence. Debbie has related to me a story, not a story, the story. When she was in, uh, she said third grade, she used to be told to write to her her grandmother in Carmel, that was her dad's, her dad's uh, mom. And if she was like me, it, was, it had to be under a compulsion to do that. And she said that her granny Tower, she called her Grammy, Grammy Tower would send back these letters, no accompanying note, with a red pencil marking all the gram grammatical errors and the spellings. And, and I thought to myself, uh, draw near with confidence. Nope, not in that case. The opposite of drawing near with confidence is avoidance or timidity. And I've always admitted to people that the hardest part of my faith in Christ and my walk with Christ has been in the area of prayer. Again, because I think Satan focuses on that. We think that Jesus is poking us with, a, with his angry finger into our chest and saying, you say you are a Christian, just look at your grammar. That's not what I originally wrote, but I thought of that. Just look at the way you live. Look at your behavior. Look at your thought life. Look at how you treat one another, and you say you're a Christian. And that was the debate that, Jesus, that uh, Adam and Eve had with Satan in the first chapter of Genesis. Because we are saved by grace, we can draw near to God and share our grossest thoughts and sins. And that's, that's kind of a new thought for, for new Christians because there's a temptation to want to impress God. I had a friend over for dinner one night who was going through marital difficulty. Uh, his wife was separated from him. And we were sitting around our dining table and holding hands and praying. And I stated to God, Lord, sometimes life sucks. And Mark jerked his hand away from my hand, and he said, can we talk to God that way? 
And I told him that we can. I said, after all, he can read our mind. He knows our thoughts. He knows who we really are. And our maturity in Christ is only going to grow as we talk to him honestly. We can say that we're bored with church, for instance. You ever come to church? When we came this morning, we had to come especially early because they're having a race uh, downtown and they block off our street. And we learned that the hard way a couple years ago. So now we get up early and, and they're very legalistic. They won't move the cones for you. You have to uh, race around them and get the, uh, get the bird. But we can say that we're bored with church. We're not always bored. That's just a phase we can go through. One of my best friends was going through a funk one time, and I said, I am too. Let's start meeting together, and we did. And we met for a year for breakfast once a week, and we got through it together. We just embraced one another, and we came side, came, he came alongside me. We can also say that we don't like reading our Bible because we don't get anything out of it, we think, or we don't know how to pray, so don't. Our Heavenly Father wants to hear that. He wants to hear about our longings and our ears and our frustrations and our temptations. By taking off our masks and ceasing our efforts, as I said, to impress, we can deepen over time our relationship with the Holy Father. And that's going to happen over a long period of time. I, I looked to Paul because he said early in his ministry, I, I love this, he said in 1 Corinthians 15, I am the least of the apostles. So he found himself to be kind of a small fish in a, a small pond. So he was still a big deal. Later in his life, he wrote in Ephesians 3, I am the least of all the saints. Okay, well, that's a little bit of a bigger pool, and he's talking about being the least of them. But later, at the very end of his life in 1 Timothy, he said that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. He came to a point in his life through the process of sanctification. See, we get saved, and then God loves us just as we are, and we can't work hard enough to have him love us any more than he does. We are, as God looks at you who know Christ and me, he sees Jesus Christ. That's an amazing truth. So I'm not having to dance with him all the time and dodge him. I'm supposed to draw near to him knowing that he loves me and is not checking my grammar or, or redlining all my work. And Paul got it. I read one time, which I always remember, the closer you get to the sun, S-U-N, the more you see the dirt in the formerly shadowed creases. And S-O-N, too, right? The closer you get to God, the more you see in your own life the sin. And it can be subtle and it can be grave, but he loves us and forgives us. One of the things that bugs me about Christians, I say oftentimes that I hate Christians, and people say, I thought you are one. And that's just my way of saying to people to get into conversation. But too often we are seeking forgiveness. And I believe that the Bible doesn't say that. It says instead to, to confess our sins and he forgives. It's not through the forgiveness, it's not through the confession that the forgiveness comes. He's already forgiven. We are confessing in order to restore that relationship that we've broken. What's the old adage that if the phone, if he's not answering the phone, guess who failed to call, right? Or who guess who broke the line? Lastly, 
very briefly, oh, we're running out of time. Lastly, let's look briefly at the verses about our not forsaking or neglecting our assembling together and the admonition to spur one another on to good deeds. Sunday is not the Sabbath for the Christian. We think it is. It's not. Jesus is the Sabbath, according to Hebrews. We gather not because of some law or rule, but because we want to see each other regularly face-to-face. It's such an encouragement. Uh, Sue Wing, when we were in the, I was in the, in the fellowship hall, and she, we were talking about listening to Matt on tape, if you missed the sermon, or Lee, or maybe even me, and... Sometimes people watch television in the morning before they come to church to see a, one of their favorite pastors. But Sue made the comment, I love being here and seeing people face to face, and I don't like not being here. Well, that's, that's the picture of do not neglect the gathering together. Not because it's a rule or a law. We gather together in small groups. We gather together when we go to Starbucks. We gather together as the church every time there are two or three together or just by yourself. One with you as a majority. So we need to get it out of our mind that people who don't show up are not keeping God's law. We don't have a law for that. It's kind of like giving. You give cheerfully. I wrote a letter to the board one time, years and years ago, that if you think you're getting closer to God by giving more, then you probably should stop giving. And everybody said, where do I sign up? Actually, nobody asked that. But that's the temptation. Phil, the financial guy's back there, hey, shut up, shut up. (laughs) But it's true. We have to to get out of that mentality because... temple has been broken down. It is destroyed. And there's only one way for us to have our remission of sin, and that's through Jesus Christ and, and faith in Him. Jesus doesn't want us to be fruit inspectors either, putting unbiblical burdens on each other. Uh, can't go into that right now. But I want to say two experiences that I had early in my life in this church, almost four decades ago, and that the first one had to do with coming to this church for the first time and we were down at the Baskin-Robbins property. That's where the church was. And we were building a building in Concord and trying to get a store open. So Debbie and I were working 15 hours a day, seven days a week. And we said, we have been in Benicia two months, but this is our first time to church. And his answer was, you shouldn't work on Sunday. So much for, so much for uh, drawing closer with confidence. And another time, uh, our former pastor was at Rayleigh's. And he used to brag or, or tell us anyway that he didn't shop or go to restaurants or anything on Sundays because he didn't want to have make, he wouldn't want to make people work. And I saw him in Rayleigh's, but I never did see him. I saw him, but I never did see him. And I figured he was dodging through the aisles trying to avoid me because of maybe embarrassment or something. But that's what happens when you start having putting laws and burdens on one another. You don't gather together and embrace one another. Instead, you, you build um, fences and walls. Friends in Christ, the veil has been torn and our access to God is sure and complete. In the Talmud, I read, it states that when the, when the temple veil had to come down, thank God we don't have one here, had to come down for cleaning, it took 300 priests to bring it down. And in that same article, it said, rhetorically, I wonder how many priests it took to restitch it because the temple was used for another 30 or 40 years after, the, after, the, after it was broken in two. And it went on to talk about the stitches that we're putting in the veil. Personally, how many stitches? What stitches? And I'm going to leave you with this, this question or this statement. 
because it, it bears repeating. Each one of us is continually in a fight with our old nature. Paul says that, that wrestling match with the old nature and the new nature is continuous. And we have to acknowledge that and tell God, I know that you've redeemed me, but you also left me with the old nature. And so sin is always present, and sinning is always present in us. And because that's true for each of us, we need to give our brothers and sisters space to grow in grace. Space to harm you, not on purpose, but maybe. To fail to meet your expectations. To do things you might not do or wouldn't do. To be unlovable and unlovely. To be needy and cranky and ungrateful to fail to acknowledge you even, to sing the wrong songs, to tell the wrong jokes, to wear the wrong clothes, to have a baby out out of wedlock, to be an addict of some kind. Let each of us put away our unbiblical litmus tests for what defines Christian behavior. After all, if we don't love each other under these conditions, we we can't really call it unconditional, can we? The last thing I wanted to give you a homework assignment in those verses, which I already explained why it's almost impossible to cover them adequately, there is what Matt was talking about this morning, the four values. In verse 22, it was about worship. Verse 23, about going and sharing the hope that is in you. Verse 24, growing in Christ, growing in God's word. And in verse 25, the idea of connecting, assembling together, and doing it joyfully and with the intention of embracing one another in love because Christ so much loves you, loves me, loves us. Let me uh, close with a quick prayer. Father, thank you for the good grace that you have been offering us for 2,000 years. We are so gratified that you alone know our needs, and can meet them adequately. Father, sometimes we, we, we put up a veil and don't feel like we can confidently come before you and dismiss that, Father. Tear that down permanently for us so that our prayer lives will be, will be more energetic and more selfless and more worshipful. Help us to find somebody to be a friend and to walk with them and to deepen our relationship with another, with you, as iron sharpens iron. And Father, remind us that we're not, we're only in this building to learn and to grow in grace and to be encouragement so that we can leave these walls and be the church in the community. And thank you for this, this, this half hour and this hour of worship. Uh, we are so appreciative of your love. It's in Jesus' name I pray for all of us. Amen.